Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This week on the Mike Wise Show, the NBA coaching carousel is spinning out of control with shocking departures and more possibly on the way. Who better to provide perspective on the profession than one of the greatest coaches in basketball history? And he's standing by. But first, Darlene, do your thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Thank you, Darlene. Some legendary coaches have a coaching treat. Today's guest has a coaching forest. Here's a partial list of head coaches and executives that he's mentored. Greg Popovich, John Calipari, Bill Self, Alvin Gentry, Maryland head coach Mark Turgeon, Spurs general manager R.C. Bruford, Buford, and countless others. If the rumors out there are true, his former point guard in Detroit, Chauncey Billups, may soon be added to the list. Our guest this week is the one and only Hall of Famer, again visiting with us, Larry Brown. Welcome, Coach. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me. No, thank you. It's hard to know where to begin as usual, but let's start with the most shocking move. Rick Carlisle is out as Mavericks head coach after 13 seasons and an NBA title in 2011. This one was a jaw dropper for me. Uh, You? Yeah, kind of. You know, I, I've taken over nine teams in the NBA. I only took over one team with a winning record, and that was Detroit. And I followed Rick Carlisle. And I was so fortunate to follow him because his values were so much ingrained in the team I inherited. And those values kind of gave us an opportunity to play at a very high level. I've had unbelievable respect for him. You know, so many of these moves that have happened recently kind of blown me away. I think yeah. analytics analytics, and uh, general managers and, you know, 15 assistant coaches have changed the whole dynamics of our coaching profession. And to lose somebody like Rick Carlisle, who I believe is one of the great coaches in our league, really is troubling. And I'm with you. I don't I don't get it. But I remember your first season with the Pistons after he'd led them to 100 victories over two years. You you win the NBA championship. And you know, don't win the NBA championship. To me, it's the greatest upset um, in the NBA finals um, that I could remember. And I, I think the team you defeated in the Eastern Conference finals that season, of course, were the Indiana Pacers coached by Rick Carlisle. Looking back 17 years. What was the key to that team's success? Well, I had a great staff. Uh, 
you know, you, when you talk about my forest, people sit next to me, you know, guys like Mike Woodson and Dave Hanners and Phil Ford, Pat Sullivan, my brother, mm. um, who, you know, were guys that the players trusted. We had more depth than just about any team in the league. Uh, you know, people, people don't realize how important it is to have depth when you're playing for a championship and you're playing against great players like, you know, Shaquille and Kobe, because you're ultimately going to get in foul trouble at some point. And you need people coming off the bench that in some cases even make you better. Uh, so that was definitely a key. Uh, and then, People talk about us not having a superstar. I think when we look at superstars today, generally you only think about guys that score the ball. And we forget about how guys can impact the game in so many other areas. And I had Ben Wallace, who may be as good a defender as you could ha possibly have. We had Rashid, who maybe is as good all-around player as I've ever coached. He had Chauncey, great leadership qualities, who sacrificed a lot for, for in his game for the things that we felt were necessary to help us win. He had Rip Hamilton. He had, you know, Colas Williamson coming off the bench. And you had Tayshaun Prince and Mimo Okor, two young players that Joe Dumars asked me to play after Rick left. So. Yeah. We were a deep team. We really should have swept them, uh, if you if you remember the yes. series. I gave away game two. You know, we had a three-point lead with few, a few seconds left. I told the team maybe we should foul, you know, and they told me, no, Coach, we never foul. And Kobe made an incredible shot, and we ended up losing in overtime. That's right. That, that, and the funny thing was that people thought that would could be the turning point for the Lakers in the series. And it wasn't your, your team. You just had a better team. They had two future hall of famers. You had a better team. I'm with you. I think that uh, so many players, I look at the Sixers now, I look at all these guys that have all these facets, but if you don't have the catalyst people, the, the, the glue guys, the guy that gets the big rebound, um, the guy that tips the ball on a jump ball and then you in game possession, little things like that to me are championship plays. Um, I don't think those things can be measured by analytics. And one of the things that bothered me about, and I, Mark Cuban's been on this show and he's great, but when he hired the former sports better, Bob Bulgaris as his analytics guru back in 2018. And so you got this guy gaining all this major influence at the expense of a guy like Donnie Nelson, who, you know, he's been overseas scouting forever. He's the reason that you have the roster you have. And I, I, it's as simple as I looked at the Mavericks and I thought, boy, this is a great, this is a fun old school team. They got an inside outside presence and yeah, they got a three point, they got a couple great three point shooters, but they also have some guys that, that play the way, you know, that giving up, giving yourself to the good of the group. And now I just feel like these guys, it's all about three over two, no matter what you do. I've been an analytics guy since I'm 14 years old. I used to know good shot, bad shot. We had to get to the free throw line more than somebody else. We had to put our, 
the opponents in foul trouble. You know, we had to share the ball. We had to guard. We had to get back on transition. Um, it's it's something that I, I really look to stat sheets all the time. Analytic guys, you know, are only good in my mind based on what they coaches value in a player, in a team. And you're dumb if you don't use all the information you can get. But a lot of these analytic people's never played at all. They don't really know what a coach's values are. You know, we talk about the corner three point, how important that shot is. They never talk about where the who shoots it and if you miss it, what what it's gonna be, what the problem might be. So, you know, I don't get it. Durant yeah. doesn't only shoot threes. No. He shoots a mid-range shot. You, We beat uh, the Lakers in 2004 because we got Shaq in foul trouble some games. Some games in the first half, he had three fouls. He was sitting on the bench. The Lakers were a great team, but they're not certainly as great with Shaq sitting on the bench. Um, and I think you have to understand that. But to me, when I look at an NBA game now and I see 15 coaches sitting behind the bench, I have to shake my head. I can't imagine being in a film room when you're talking about things that you have to get your players to do and you get 15 different opinions because everybody feels like they have to say something to make everybody understand they're important. Doesn't make sense to me. Did you... When you were coaching, what, how how many were the most assistants you ever had? Well, I started out with Doug Moe and myself. <laughs> and we knew all 13 players by name, and we coached them all. And our hope was that 1 through 13 felt like we cared about them equally. Um, I think the most I ever had was three guys sitting next to me and two or three behind the bench. And I always had great guys behind the bench. At one time, I had Igor Kaskoskov and my brother um, sitting behind the bench with Mike Woodson, Phil Ford, Dave Hannes, and Pat mm. Sullivan. Um, and every one of us coached every guy. Uh, I never had a, a developmental coach. I never had a workout coach. I had coaches. Um, I never labeled one my top assistant because I wanted to be able, if, if a GM or a president or an owner called me to ask me to recommend a head coach, I wanted to tell them, you know, I recommend anyone on my staff. And if they ever ask me what's their expertise, whether it's defense or offense, I'd say, no, they're a coach. They're a coach. Mm. They're a teacher. There's somebody that cares about the game, that somebody's going to make players better, and that somebody's going to be loyal to you that you could work with. I, I can't agree with you more on all this. I know I'm going to sound like an old person yelling at the clouds, but I saw Stan Van Gundy out after just one season. He reportedly had three years left on his deal. And everybody's saying this was a move to placate Zion Williamson, who's a great player. And uh, but who's but it's the, the story was that his family members were reportedly unhappy with Stan's coaching style. 
who cares about their family members? You know, this is work. This is family. You know, it's two different things. I, there, I know people that didn't like each other, but they did well together. I mean, it, I just don't understand the the influence um, here. And maybe I just sound old. No, I don't. I don't think you sound old, and it doesn't look good for Zion. And Zion's no. a great kid. Uh, I think he has an amazing future. That's a very young team. You know, young teams take time. They fired Alan, Alvin Gentry to bring in Stan Van Gundy. You yeah. know, I, I, I like Stan Van Gundy. I think they hired Stan Van Gundy because during the bubble, he was doing the color and he sounded really bright. <laughs> and, you know, I know he's bright. I coached against him in Orlando when he had a great, great team. And I admired what he did. But, you know, my whole thing, uh, young kids want to be taught. you got to develop their trust. Mm. You can't have 15 people talking to them. And you can't have outside people influencing them. Because, you know, I didn't have to deal with social media years and years ago. I can't imagine the pressure a kid would face after he maybe struggles in a game and he has to read all these comments on social media. Mm -hmm. Or this is the one thing that really troubles me. When I was growing up, mm. my mom wanted to send my brother and I to college. That was her whole idea. She wanted to make our lives better than hers. Today, these young kids are forced to make their families' lives better. And that's pressure mm -hmm. that I never realized and I, I, I don't know how you can handle it. it, it it's, it goes so much deeper than basketball. You're right. The, there's so much, there's so many layers there. The idea that you have to be a CEO of your own company and, and sort of dole out money to your family members in some levels. I, I don't begrudge anybody trying to make their life better and whatnot, but the idea that, that they, they become the provider at that age is scary. Um, I think the whole classic, you know, Stan has a, uh, a real hit and miss resume when it comes to dealing with his star players. And you go through this. Uh, you went through this with Allen Iverson for years. I, I, the biggest thing I think, and this would be really helpful for coaches and, and players and fans is how, how does someone like Larry Brown, how do you thread that needle between being the boss, but also being an ally for your star player? Well, you know, every team I took over, there were certain things that were really evident to me. Um, and, and as soon as we walked in the dressing room, I told our, our coaches, there's some things that we got to understand. I said, after two practices, those players will know whether we can coach or not. And that was important. And then I said, after a few practices, they would know whether they could win with us, which I thought was important. And then the third thing was that if they thought we were really good, we could make them better and they would make more money. And I thought that was important. But the thing that I felt would trump everything is if they knew we cared about them, mm. if they trusted us. And if we could develop their trust, they would do almost anything for us. And that was something that I think was the most important thing. Uh, 
I, I think a lot of times now people are afraid to coach these guys. You know, I, mm. I go to an NBA game and I watch the warmups before the teams come out on the court. They have two coaches working with each player. The player shoots a jump shot. He doesn't even get his own rebound. And somebody throws the other coach the ball. He either does a dribble handoff or throws him a pass to shoot a jump shot or even pretends he's setting a ball screen. I don't get it. The head coach, the assistant coaches aren't even out there. I don't even know, know a lot of them if they really know everybody's name. So mm. it's, it's troubling to me. I, I believe the NBA players are the best. I believe as good as they are, they want a staff that they know cares, cares about them and are, they're going to be working with them and not afraid to coach them and tell them when they do something right and tell them when they need to, need to do something better. And we're missing that. Yeah. You know, I got into coaching. Coach Smith paid me $6,000. I made $1,000 for summer camp, and he thought he overpaid me. This was to be a graduate assistant? No, I was a regular assistant. It was John Lotz, myself, and Coach Dean Smith. $6,000 to be a regular assistant? Regular assistant. I think he was making 13500 <laughs> and I told him you were even being overpaid. What, but what year are we talking about? 66, 67. Okay, all right. This is right after your playing career. Yeah. yeah, but and then I went back to play again in the ABA and made twice as much money as right. I was coaching, which was like stealing. <laughs> That's great. Um, well, I I envision Larry Brown coming back to an NBA team now, and you walking onto the court and uh, feeding a guy in the post beforehand, and you know, and, and showing him a couple up and under moves, and then a guy coming out from the uh, organization saying, "Hey, what are you doing, coach? We have people to do this." You don't have to yeah. get involved, intimately involved with your players here and, and teach them uh, the old uh, uh, hook pass into the post or anything and how to be a point guard. You don't need to. We, we have people for that. And you, well, and you look at them like, what the hell? They, they're not going to know what better than I know it. <laughs> I believe that. Um, I didn't get dumber as I got older. I'll give you an example of the new norm. Yeah. When I was coaching – and we'd have 55 to 60 kids come in pre-draft and we'd work with them. And you got to understand, you're only possibly going to draft two of the 55 or 60 guys. I ran the workout because the wow. thing that was important to me, I wanted to show these kids that I cared enough about them to help them improve their game. And so if they left somewhere and we didn't draft them and someday we might have an opportunity to sign them in free agency, they would know Larry Brown cared enough about them to put them through a workout. I also wanted to let them let me understand whether they were anxious to learn, whether they were respectful of coaching. Now you don't see head coaches running kids through, you know, no. workouts. You don't see it, head coaches drafting players. You know, I was lucky enough. The people that worked for me knew our values, things that were important to me. Maybe a, a guy that was a defensive player, a guy that moved the ball, set screens, didn't care about shooting the ball. Maybe that was the guy that would play for Larry Brown. I, 
I look around now, I see people making drafts for other coaches that maybe don't have the same kind of values they have. I'm not saying, you know, scouts aren't important and we can't use them and their knowledge and the fact that they're working on it to help our team get better. But I watch basketball. You can't tell me guys that are in the draft in college that I haven't seen or haven't really looked at and thought about how they would fit into if I was fortunate enough to coach. And I just don't get it. I think it's got to be a collaborative effort on the scouts, the assistant coaches, and the head coach to find out who really bets fits into what we're trying to accomplish. I'll give you an example. Yeah. Philly has Joel Embiid. They bring in Al Herford, and they have Tobias Harris. Now, Al Herford's a center. Tobias Harris is a power forward. If you're going to play all three of them, two of them are going to be out of position. Even though they're great players, it's going to put them in a position Mm -hmm. that's not going to really show their true value. So that's just an example of something that I think we all are to think about. Uh, uh, great points, all of them. I, um, one of the things that's going on right now with all these coaching vacancies is there's a lot of uh, buzz about somebody like Becky Hammond, who's been uh, you know mentored by Greg Popovich and R.C. Buford, two of your protégés, um, and Carol Lawson, Teresa Witherspoon, or other prominent women being mentioned as viable candidates for NBA head coaching jobs. Do you think most team presidents and GMs will have the courage to give one of them a chance for next season? Uh, Or do you think it's, you know, they'll almost be pressured into it by a society that's saying we're ready for this. I think there's, there's some very qualified coaches out there and some of them happen to be women. Your thoughts. Well, I'm for anybody that can coach having an opportunity to coach at the highest level. Um, You know, I've been to Pops practice and watched Becky, and, you know, I have great admiration for her. I have unbelievable admiration for, you know, the women's game. I I think it's a beautiful thing to watch, you know. I'll give you a a funny example. I remember one day I I was – I'm a big fan of Gino. Um, Aliyama, yeah. I was in Sydney and he was an assistant coach with the women's team when I was with Rudy and, uh, you know, Coach Katie and Tubby. Uh, we spent a lot of time together. I remember Gino saying, you know, I'd, I'd love to be a college coach someday and on the men's side. And I said to Gino, you know, you're doing an unbelievable job at Connecticut. I said, if you get to be a coach on the men's side, you're going to get a job like Providence or Boston College. And in two weeks, you're going to lose more games than you ever lost in 10 years at Connecticut. (laughs) And people are going to say you can't even coach again. So uh, I I think somebody might hire a women's coach who's going to be highly qualified. but I know there's a lot of men's coaches out there that are highly qualified that paid their dues. I just hope they take the best candidate. That's the only thing that I care about. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, 
I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about, uh, you know, the Tokyo Olympics are coming up. I want to say um, you were you were an athlete at the 64 games in Tokyo. Um, and uh, I, I, any any memories from them? I remember interviewing you before you went to maybe it was in Athens when I was covering the Olympics for The Washington Post. And you had you had some great stories about uh, essentially having a training camp at Pearl Harbor and all these all these great stories. Do you, anything come to mind as the Olympics draw near and your Olympic experience all those years ago um, uh, flicker by? A lot of them. You know, I got to play for Mr. Iba and John McClendon, hmm. which uh, has really impacted my life. You know, I I, I think and you probably know this, nobody has played for coaches like I have I've been, you know, yeah. lucky enough to have great coaches sit next to me, be able to coach unbelievable great players, and also have guys like Mr. Iba, John McClendon, Alex Hannum, you know, Bay McCarthy. And then in college, I played for Dean Smith and Frank McGuire. I don't think anybody's been fortunate enough to have the background I had. Um, I remember when we were told we were going to go to Hawaii to practice and train, we all thought, gosh, we're going to be on the beach learning <laughs> how to surf, you know, just having an unbelievable time. They put us in a Marine barracks um, and we trained with the Hawaiian Marines. We practiced in a court that was basically outdoors. We practiced two times a day and had a meeting. We got up at 7.30 in the morning, ate breakfast, got on a bus, drove to the facility, practiced till noon, got lunch, came and had a meeting, had a couple of hours rest, went, went to practice that night, and basically practiced, you know, until Coach Ivan thought we had enough. We had one day off. I remember the last day he drove us around the island and we saw Hawaii. So. Do you, I'm writing there. a book, Coach, on um, um, an Olympian from 1964, uh, uh, Billy Mills, uh, oh, wow. 10,000-meter runner. Do you remember anything about him from 64? Were you guys even staying in the village at that time, in the Athletes' Village, or what, what was that like? Yeah, we were all in a dorm, uh, which has now become housing, yeah. you know, in Japan. Yeah. And they had closed-circuit TV. And I remember, you know, we couldn't go to every event because Mr. Iba made us practice even the days of games. If we uh -oh. had a night game, we practiced in the morning. If we had a, a day game, we practiced that night. The only day we didn't practice was before the final game when we played Russia and we're fortunate enough to beat Russia. But I remember we were in the same dorm with Bob Hayes and Billy Mills and Showlander. I remember they had a special room for Showlander because he was <laughs> such a hero. And they used to put their flowers and all the presents the Japanese women would, would send to the guy. But uh, I remember watching that race. Oh, yeah. Uh, the 10,000 meters when he was never even a, he was an afterthought in that race. And yeah. he came from, came from nowhere. And uh, it was it was just incredible. I, you know, that whole experience was kind of unique. I gave 
my um, credentials to uh, the pole vaulter that won the Olympics so he could get into our game. And I remember when I went, um, I think it was Fred Hansen, if I remember. Yeah. And I remember when I was getting ready to go into the game and they were asking for credentials, I didn't have mine. And if Mr. Iba wasn't standing next to me, I never would have gotten into the final game. Because you, you gave know? the pole vaulter, uh, you gave Fred Hansen your your credential? Yeah, so he could watch our game. Oh, thought, that's great. I thought it was like a 16,000-seat arena. Uh, I, w- I took my UCLA team there in 1980 yeah. to play in the Centurion Bowl, and I was telling the kids how big the arena was and, I said, after the game, all the NBA scouts and GMs were signing the players to play in the NBA. Uh, the arena sat 4,500 at most. <laughs> and, our, and our dressing room could only fit about 12 people. And if you showered, you were showering next to a guy who was dressing. It was so small. And they, they laughed at me. Uh, it's funny. It's like one of those things when you go back to your high, your old home as a child and you realize, oh, the steps I fell down were only three, three flights. They weren't 20. Um, <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, I know you're a big fan of Broadway shows. What are you most looking forward to, the NBA finals or the reopening of Broadway theaters? <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was a you know, coaching, uh, my first coaching job with Carl Shear, part of my contract was seven days in New York. And I would go to the U.S. Open in the afternoon and morning and go to a Broadway show at night. My mom got me interested in Broadway shows. The first show I actually saw, I think, was My Fair Lady when, uh, you know, um, Rex Harrison was in it and Julie Andrews. Julie uh, Andrews. Yeah, and that just was something that I'll I'll never forget. I always appreciated it. But to be honest with you, uh, I'm excited that fans are going to be in the stands for the finals. I'm yeah. excited fans are there now. Uh, the league needs it, needs it in a bad way, I think. Uh, but we also need Broadway. We need to bring New York back. When um, what, what's the best Broadway show you ever saw? I'm curious. I uh, I loved them all. I loved The King and I. To be honest with you, yeah, uh, that was fun. Aspects of Love. A lot of people don't even know about it, but uh, Les Mis, I think, is the greatest one I've ever seen. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I've seen some great comedies. When I was living in New York for ten years, it was. Boy, you got those TKS tickets half price. I was always up in the balcony somewhere. It was you can't beat live theater. It's tremendous. It's yeah, uh, the t- the talent of so many people blew me away. Uh, Billy, Billy Crystal would be mad at me. He's a if I didn't say it was seven hundred Sundays or whatever. You know his show. <laughs> All right, his play. That's great. You know what? There. Uh, did you see? Did you see Hamilton? Oh yeah. I yeah. went with my my family to Hamilton. Uh, a, you know, I'm not. I'm I'm having a hard time with some of that music. Uh, yeah, you know, it's a little different than what I what I was used to. But I was an American history major at North Carolina. I had some unbelievable American history teachers. So 
Hamilton was something I really enjoyed based on that. Yeah, it was it's so true to the story and everything. Um, Billy Crystal uh, is, I don't want to say sitting you know, as, as a longtime Clippers fan and you go to the, I feel like they could be close if they could, they're the only team I think it could beat Phoenix. Well, Monty's done an amazing job. Uh, they got some terrific young players. And Chris Paul's just super. I yeah. mean, you know, to me, the value of a player is how he makes other players better. And Chris does that on both ends of the court. And I think there's a tremendous trust be- between Monty and him. And I think that's something that's really, really under undervalued in the NBA. You, you got to have great trust with your best player. Um, and, I, and I think Monty allows Chris to lead that team without feeling that Chris is doing some of the things that maybe a head coach needs to do. And that, that speaks bodes well for Mon- Monty. I, th- yeah. I think when you empower your players – especially on the highest level of the NBA. I think the respect they have for you is something that really is important. I completely agreed. I'm looking at the Chris Paul's career and I really put it up again. I mean, I would throw him in the greatest point guards ever with John Stockton, uh, Magic, Isaiah, shoot, Kuzi. I don't know. There, uh, do you think he's in that? In that category, does he have to win it all before he well, – Isaiah I Thomas? To, I hate to see these people talk about guys that haven't won it all and aren't great players. So many good mm. things have to work your way. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Stockton. I'm glad you mentioned Isaiah. I, You know, I got to coach Isaiah in 1980 with the Olympic team that weren't allowed to go because Carter – you know, yeah. was mad at about Afghanistan. So we boycott that Olympics and then the Russians boycott our Olympics. I couldn't figure that out. But you mentioned great ones. Nash didn't win a championship, I don't think. No. And unbelievable player. Stockton certainly did it, didn't win. And you can talk about great, great players without mentioning him. Think about it. If you look at Malone and Stockton and see – the number of games they played and the amount of number of games that they miss with this load management, people would shake their head. Those, oh. the, 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 I don't understand load management. If I ever did that with Alvin Gentry or Ben Wallace or Rashid or Chauncey or Reggie Miller or people like that, they would have laughed at me. They would have been oh. so angry with me. Yeah. You would have got a call from uh, you would have got a call from David Stern or uh, Larry O'Brien. I mean that that's just crazy. I, I like load management. Even the term itself, like why don't you call it needed rest? Load management sounds like a bowel movement or something. It just doesn't. It, it's awful. And you know you're familiar with the rant about Alvin with Alan with practice, but oh, just a little. Yeah, <laughs> but but my team's practice. I, I felt a responsibility to every day be on the court to help our guys get better. Um, I was, I think I was careful when a guy would play a lot of minutes and not, you know, put him through a, an extended practice. But the guys that didn't play a lot, we ran it like a college practice. 
because yeah. if you ever put in a young player who hadn't practiced every day and you haven't worked with him, when he gets in a game, he's never going to be able to show you what he's capable of doing because simply he hadn't been taught or is not in the kind of shape that he needs to be in to show the level of play he's capable of playing. So I felt that was really important. And I think most of the guys that played for me, you know, they would laugh, oh, coach, why are we practicing today? But at the end of the day, they would respect the fact that we cared enough to spend the time to help them get better. Uh, I completely agree. Again, we're, um, I'm, I'm preaching to the chorus on this. There's something about a, a, a genuine relationship between people before player and coach that, that trumps all of that. And, and you've, you've been a you know, shining example of that. Um, before I let you go, who, who wins this all? To not have these teams at 100% is something that troubles me. Uh, I admire everybody there. Yeah. I think, like you say, uh, at the early point in the playoffs, I think Phoenix was playing the best. Yeah. But you got to be so lucky. You know, yeah. we, we lo- I blew game five when I was coaching Detroit when we were in San- against San Antonio. You know, we had an out-of-bounds defensive situation that I blew completely. Um, and, then Bob, and then Robert Horry hits that shot. Yeah, we uh, we talked about giving up no threes. Um, I said if they make a two, we get a chance to go overtime and possibly win or even get a last shot. But Rashid made a play that we made play. I allowed our team to make plays they thought that were in the best interest of our ball club. And he made a play that he thought was right. Ginobili made a great pass. Or he makes big shots all the time. We end up losing it. So you just got to be lucky. I Mm. hope the best team wins, to be honest. Darvin Ham, uh, Milwaukee's top assistant, somebody you uh, are very high on uh, and have a great relationship with. Tell tell me what what about him that, um, that impresses you. Well, he, he's a student of the game. Uh, He, he was given nothing, you know, he made every team because of his character and how hard he played and the respect he had for the game. Um, he's been around great players. He's been around great coaches. You know, Milwaukee doesn't win solely because of their talent or Mike, you know, their head coach. They win because of guys like Darvin, who's not afraid to tell Giannis, you know, you need to do this better. You know, these are things that our team needs you to win. They're not going to be afraid to coach. And I think, like I said earlier in our conversation, players yeah. respect guys that are going to be able to coach and teach them and not be afraid to tell them what they need to do better. Darwin has great communication skills. You know, Chauncey's in the same boat. You know, I, I hear his name mentioned. Players instantly are going to respect Chauncey. And like Darwin, Chauncey's road to success was not quite easy. He was traded no. a lot. He was told he couldn't play. He was, he was the third pick in the draft, got moved to, I don't know, any number of times. And all of a sudden, a Rick Carlisle and a Joe Dumars believed in him. And he became MVP in the you know, championship series and had a great career. I even coached Jerome Allen 
whose name has been mentioned, you know, was in Boston. Oh, yeah. I, I coached Jason Kidd on the Olympic team in Sydney um, and qualifying team. There's a lot of people that I feel are out there that I think I'll make a great head coach. Well, I, I know you're 80 and you're going to be 81 in September. I, I, I think you're as, I think you're as contemporary as you are old. I'd love for you to coach um, my son's team. He's 10. I know that's not going to happen. I know if it did, it would cost me a lot of money, but what would you tell, what would you tell my son's 10 year old team and how do I need to just get out of his life and just shut up in the stands? Because I can't shut up. I just, I, I, I want to see everything go well for him. And I, I'm a lot, I'm, I'm one of those sports parents who just needs to back off. You know, uh, I have a bunch of grandkids playing sports, mostly with girls. <laughs> they play field hockey, soccer, lacrosse. I go to as many events as I'm able and I can't believe the remarks I hear from families in the stands. It blows me away. Oh. You know, I want to turn around and say, hey, leave them alone. Let them enjoy the moment. Maybe they're not going to make the USA Olympic team, but they're going to have a, a lot of fun, you know, sharing stories with their teammates and playing a game that they can play the rest of their lives. Uh, I would tell any young kid, don't just specialize on one sport. You know, when I was mm. growing up, I played football, baseball, and basketball. Every season was a new challenge for me. Uh, my favorite athlete of all time was Jackie Robinson. I even walked pigeon-toed because that's how <laughs> Jackie walked. I think playing every sport allowed uh. me to have a future in basketball because you know, playing an individual sport and a team sport, I think, is really a good thing because you appreciate being part of a team if you're on a team sport. And if you play an individual sport, you know you get as much out of it as much as, much as you put into it. And sometimes it's important to focus on yourself and say, hey, how, how, the harder I work, the better I'll be. So I think there's a lot of good in doing both. So I, I don't want young kids to specialize. I, mm. I hate these select teams. Um, I think they come too soon. I tell them, go to any camp you can, especially work on fundamentals mm. and allow coaches to teach you. The, you know, don't think coaching is criticism. Think coaching is somebody that's trying to help you and make you better. And that's something we all should focus on. Well, I thank you again. You, you're always great. I never take for granted that I have the only coach in basketball history to win both an NCAA title and an NBA title. And shoot, I think you won one with the Oakland Oaks of the old ABA for a year for a year as well. I, you know, I I just I That's want to thank true. you. Thank you for being who you are. And I I I try to preach your message. Of, of of teaching and life lessons into coaching as much as possible because whether it's kids or multimillionaires, we all need that. We all need someone to we all need someone to learn from. And and you're one of the best teachers of not just the game but life to a lot of kids and people. And and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you that. So thanks, Larry. Let me let me bring one other thing up. 
Oh, that's uh, great. Yeah. You shoot, you could talk to me all day. <laughs> you know, we're going we're going through some social changes and real, yeah. real problems in our society. Uh, you know, I tell everybody if our world was like a team and we treated people like a team, it would be better because when you're part of a team, the thing that matters is can you play and are you a decent human being? Yeah. And I think those are things that are so important. Uh, I always talk about Coach Smith. You know, he, he used to say good people are happy when something good happens to someone else. And we're forgetting about that. And then the last thing, you know, when a lot of this stuff came about when Floyd was murdered. Yeah. I called, I called a lot of the kids that I had coached. And I, I asked them, did I ever disrespect you or say things that were offensive to you because if i did i certainly want to apologize to you because the only thing i really cared about was making you better and show you that i care and uh athletic wow that was like what what kind of guys did you call who'd you call like a couple guys that you called and and did any of them say you know coach I thought you were being hard, but it was, I didn't think it was about race or, or some people said, what kind of response did you get back? No, I, you know, I got it. It made me feel good. Uh, yeah. They, you know, there's some guys in my career that I feel like I didn't treat the right way. Mm. It wasn't things that I said to them, you know, that were offensive. It was maybe the way they felt I coached them. And that bothers me, Not, but there's not a lot of them. And I think about them all the time, but I really feel confident based on the people that mm. taught me and affected my life that I tried to do the very best I could. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I can sleep well at night knowing that. Did, is it okay for me to ask, was Alan one of the people you called? I speak to Alan all the time. Let me let me tell you one thing that Alan said made me cry. He calls me all the time. He lives yeah. in Valentine, which is outside of Charlotte. And I'm in Charlotte because my grandfather's, you know, my grandkids are there. Yeah. Alan, Alan called me shortly after John Thompson died. And he said, Coach, um, when John, Coach Thompson died before me, it really, really hurt me. So you can't die before I die. And oh. I said, Alan, look, I'm 80 years old, Alan. I said, it's <laughs> inevitable I'm going to pass before you. I said, but I want you to know you have impacted my life in such a positive way that I love you to death. And I admire what you did and what you stand for. And mm. I tell him that all the time. And even though a lot of people think our relationship was kind of messed up, he made me a better person and a better coach. And he made me as good a player as we've ever, ever, ever seen. Oh, man, that's such a sweet way to end this. I, I just look, I'm 57 um, and, and friends will say, oh, Mike, you're getting too, you know, you're, you're getting up there. You're going to hit 60. I, I got to think when you see somebody like, like Coach Thompson die, um, it, it really puts you in touch with your own mortality in some ways that you, you have this, you have these, this uh, circle of people that are almost their force of personalities were so big. You always thought they'd always be around. And now that some of them are passing, 
it must put you in touch with your own mortality a little bit. Well, think of all the coaches we've lost recently. Uh, yeah. You know, when I'm, I'm, I'm 80, I don't feel 80. Uh, you know, I you don't look 80. Well, I, I feel bad about my beard because <laughs> I don't, I don't like shaving. I didn't realize you guys were going to put me on camera, but, but to be honest with you, you know, I know what's in my heart, you know, and, but I, I see so many people I admired, you know, you mentioned, mentioned John and, you know, Lute and, West Sun. So I can go on and on the people yeah. that we've lost that have impacted my life and impacted the game that I love so much. Yeah. But yeah, let me tell you one thing about you. Uh, you care about the game and you, you never say anything that hurts people. You're always trying to make people feel good about what they've done. And uh, I certainly appreciate the way you've respected me throughout my life and my career. Uh, I, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> Thank you. That means a lot. That means a heck of a lot. Thank you. I, it's one of the nicest things anybody's ever said to me in, in my in my profession. So that means a lot, Coach. And and I hope we can have you on uh, down the road. Oh, I'd love it. You know, I'm, all right. I'm not giving up. I want to smell the gym again. So <laughs> once this once this COVID gets away, I'm going to be watching other people coach. Yeah. Be happy I'm there. If I had if I had a lot of disposable income, I'd I'd just bring you in as a consultant for the Wizards so I could watch you try and tutor the young kids here in Washington. Be great. Uh, I, I think you'd be. Just having you around is uh, would be a treat for so many. But anyway, I here's hoping you have some good times with your grandkids and you get the time you need to spend with them because that's that's the most important thing. Well, God bless you. Stay yeah. safe and we will and, and we'll do it again. All right, thank you, Coach. That was dope. I'd like to thank legendary Coach Larry Brown for joining me this week. If we played six degrees of Dr. James Naismith, we'd get to Larry in three moves. Naismith coach, legendary Kansas coach, Fog Allen, who mentored former North Carolina coach, Dean Smith, whom Larry played for at UNC. Boom. We always appreciate Larry's perspective. We also appreciate our producer, Bruce Bernstein. Thank you, Bruce. So, Bruce, it's almost time to say goodbye. Hit us with those promos. Mike. Don't you just love Coach Brown? Oh, I mean, I really almost lost it when he said those nice things at the end. He's uh, unbelievable. I, I have a really quick story before I get to the promos, yeah. but I think it's sort of, it totally sums him up. When we had Chris Mullen on this show a couple of years ago, all right, Chris was telling us a story about how his kids out in Long Island were playing ball on the playground, just pickup ball, and Coach Brown happened to be driving by he pulls over, he gets out of his car, and he starts coaching these kids on the playground. He didn't know it was Molly's son or anything, but it was no. just like, that is the quintessential saw. Larry Brown story. <laughs> he's like, all right, all right, you get up here, you're going to have to <laughs> call out a play. Yeah, he's teaching Molly's kid to play, and at some point, he goes, I think you might know my dad. Remember that? <laughs> It was, you might know my dad. It was unbelievable, and I mean, you know, it, that's, yeah. that is just so... Larry Brown. I mean, yes. just all he wants to do is teach and coach. It doesn't care if you're a $20 million player or some kid in Long Island on the blacktop. So uh, Who wants to practice. 
<laughs> talk about practice. Anyway, well, thanks again to the coach and, and the words he said to you, Mike, you almost lost it. I almost lost it. And he wasn't even mm. talking to me. But anyway, so uh, thanks also to Coach uh, Brown and our incredible editor, Kristen Woolley. Please check out all of our Pure Hoops media shows this week, Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto and Aaron Berlin. They're here every Wednesday, and they have a former colleague of ours, Adam Stanko, who is an NBA draft expert and a former host here at Pure Hoops Media. Yeah. And they were talking about uh, some of the players in the combine that we need to keep our eye on. Uh, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt, King McClure. They're here every Wednesday. BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. Pure Hoops podcast every Friday. And, of course, you are back every Monday, Mike, with a new Mike Wise show. And if folks want to hear some selected choice discussions from all of our shows, subscribe to the Pure Hoops Media Quick Hitters. And we have a ton of great video segments on our YouTube channel. And we'll be adding Larry Brown to that. Uh, Go to YouTube and search for Pure Hoops Media. Mike, take it away. Well, you've heard about our our incredible run of sponsors that have just joined the program. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, look, you can get me at, at Mike Wise Guy. You know how to get Bruce at Pure Hoops Media. It's, it's something you ought to think of because we really do have a special thing going on here. And also, now that COVID-19 vaccinations are widely available, get one. If you are one of the misguided souls who haven't gotten a vaccination, keep wearing the mask in public to protect yourselves and others. And really... Go get the shot, you anti-vaxxing idiot. Keep your guard up and be smart. Until next time, aloha. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.